book of Ruth. She is more precious than rubies. She is energetic and strong. Her lamp burns late into the night. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She laughs without fear of the future. When she speaks, her words are wise. Her children stand and bless her. Her husband praises her. These words are found in Proverbs 31. And they're used to describe a woman who is greatly to be praised, greatly to be rewarded by God. Now, depending on your upbringing, if you were raised in the church and maybe what kind of church you were raised in, you may have heard a lot about the Proverbs, the Proverbs 31 woman. A phrase spoken wistfully and aspirationally and also sometimes maybe even shamefully this moral standard that especially if you're a woman you should be attaining to men would praise their wives in a corny way for being a proverbs 31 woman and women would hope to attain to become a proverbs 31 woman I'm not sure what the function of the Proverbs 31 woman conversation was supposed to have. I think it was, in hindsight, a combination of idealizing and maybe some passive-aggressive moralizing, communicating to women what kind of woman they ought to become. Proverbs 31 women are meek and mild, possessing a quiet and, and gentle spirit. But to me, the Proverbs 31 woman, as was described to me in my upbringing, seems an ideal disconnected from reality, and quite frankly, an ideal totally disconnected from the actual Proverbs 31 women of Scripture. Because the kind of woman described in Proverbs 31 is neither meek nor mild. In fact, she's kind of a boss. That's what she is. In Proverbs 31, 28 through 29, we read this line. Her children stand and bless her. Her husband praises her. And this is how he praises her. There are many virtuous and capable women in the world, but you surpass them all. Now that little phrase, virtuous and capable, that, that's translated any number of ways across the many, many, many English translation Bibles that we have. So instead of virtuous and capable, the Bible in front of you might say something like, noble or competent or excellent and this is all well and good but not to erode your trust in scripture or anything but they all get it wrong <laughs> because the exact phrase used in proverbs 31 29 the proverbs 31 woman is a woman of valor that's a cool turn of phrase a woman of valor it is a rare phrase it is used only twice. There are only two women of valor in all of Scripture. The one in Proverbs 31 and then another. Another woman who 
through courage and bravery, secures for herself and for her mother-in-law a bright future. Her name is Ruth. Now, as we've considered women in the line of Jesus, we've looked at some uh, curious women with sometimes questionable pasts, yeah? So we've had women who have been abused. We've uh, had women who have been deceived. Next week, uh, we're going to unpack a woman who's a prostitute slash innkeeper. It's very interesting. Some of these women have had terrible things done to them. But then you get to Ruth, and everybody's on Team Ruth. Everybody likes Ruth. She's hardworking, she's diligent, she's self-sacrificing, she, she's gutsy. She is a woman of valor. Energetic, strong, hardworking, diligent. Yeah, we love, love having Ruth in the line of Jesus until we remember the inconvenient truth. Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is a foreigner. Ruth is an immigrant. But in the words of Hamilton, immigrants really do get the job done, which is what we're going to see here in the book of Ruth. Ruth is my absolute favorite book in the Old Testament, or at least tied with like three others. Um, and this morning we're going to attempt something. We're going to kind of give you a whole overview of the four chapters of the book of Ruth. Now, if you have a particularly keen mind, you'll remember that we preached the book of Ruth uh, a couple, couple advents ago because all of the book of Ruth takes place in a little town called Bethlehem. And Ruth is an ancestor of King David, which we'll see here very soon. So meet me in the book of Ruth. Uh, as you're turning to the book of Ruth, you will find that Ruth is found in your Bible between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. Now that's uh, because in uh, the kind of Protestant ordering of the Bible, that, uh, that's why it's placed there. But the book of Ruth in the Old Testament canon, in the arrangement of the Old Testament that the Hebrews read, that the Israelites read, um, the book of Ruth follows the book of Proverbs. Because you're reading at the end of Proverbs about a woman of valor, and then you go a little down further in the scroll, and now here's a whole story about a woman of valor. Uh, and we'll tell you why they rearranged it for the Protestant canon in a minute. But first, some context. So Ruth 1, are you there? Some context. There once was a man named Elimelech. He had a wife, Naomi, and he had two sons. Elimelech and his family lived in a little town called Bethlehem, which was all well and good for them until a famine struck the land. Seeking food and sustenance, Elimelech took his family to Moab, uh, a nation to the east of Israel. And upon arriving in Moab, Elimelech died, leaving Naomi and her two sons, both of whom had married Moabite women. Now this was all well and good until both of Elimelech's sons died, leaving Naomi, an Israelite woman, with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. Now, Naomi has two daughters-in-law. One is named Ruth, and the other one is named Orpah. 
Now here's your fun fact for the morning. Oprah Winfrey's mom intended to name her Orpah, but it was spelled wrong on the birth certificate. So she is Oprah. I hesitated to tell you that because I'm afraid it's the only thing you're going to remember about today. <laughs> but there you go. Use that little tidbit responsibly. So Naomi is now with her two daughters-in-law in a foreign country. Now that's their home, but if you remember last week, we kind of unpacked how powerless women are in this era of history, and that's just as true today. Remember that women without a male that they're related to, either a husband or a son, they're, they're penniless, they're hopeless, they have no means of provision, they have no means of protection, and that's exactly the situation that now Naomi and her daughters-in-law find themselves in. So Naomi elects to head back to Bethlehem, to head west, to go back to her hometown. And on the road there, she stops about halfway and turns to her daughters-in-law and says, you know what, you need to go back to your, your families. You need to go back to your mother's homes uh, and, and they'll provide for you, and I'm going to go and try to have a future back where I am from. Now, Orpah, Oprah, takes Naomi up on this, but Ruth refuses. And this is one of our first glimpses into Ruth's character. Look at Ruth 1, starting in verse 14. And again, they wept. We're on the road. It says, again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to be with her people and to her gods. You should do the same. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. This is now what comes next, one of the best pieces of all of scripture. Are you ready? Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Already one of our first glimpses into the character of Ruth, fiercely loyal fiercely loyal. She has no legal binding reason to stay with her mother-in-law. In fact, her hopes and future would be better if she went back and stayed with her family in Moab, but instead she chooses to journey as an immigrant and a foreigner to the land of Israel. So Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem penniless and hopeless, but they do have one option available to them. They have one option available to them for their well-being. Remember how in our celebration series, if you were with us, we talked about how the law of Israel commanded that if you were a farmer, you had to leave the corners and the edges of your field unharvested. That was the law. If you owned land and you farmed it, you had to leave the edges and the corners of the field unharvested so widows and the poor could harvest from it. This is to Ruth's advantage. There are fields in Bethlehem owned by faithful men who have kept the edges unharvested. So Ruth wakes up early one morning, leaves the house, and she goes to glean some grain for her, herself and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And as she heads out to glean, heads out to harvest, she just so happens, she just so happens to find herself in the fields of a man named Boaz. Boaz 
is a good guy. He, he learns that this woman is gleaning in his fields. And it just so happens that Boaz is a relative of Naomi's husband, of Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech. Is this starting to sound hallmarky to you? Because it should. <laughs> of all the fields in this little town of Bethlehem that she could have gone to, she just so happens to find herself in a field owned by her father-in-law's relative. Look at Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Boaz notices this young lady harvesting, and he goes over to her, and he says to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my fields. See which part of the field they're harvesting and follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. Okay, so that gives you a clue into the fact that Ruth, by going out and gleaning, just because there's, there's wheat on the edge of the field, doesn't mean that this is exactly a safe position for her to be in, yeah? Some, some farmhands. My wife grew up in South Dakota, and there's these, there's these people called custom combiners. You don't know about these unless you own farms, and I don't even think they come here. So custom combiners... Um, they, go all, they come from Canada south and then back, and they own their own combines, and they help farmers harvest their fields. Okay, um, a rough crowd. When the custom combiners were in town, Kyla knows. When the custom combiners were in town, Steph wasn't allowed to leave the house. Okay? Uh, these hired hands helping Boaz, he knows they're not of the best type, so he's kind of gone out of his way to protect Ruth. He says, and when you're thirsty... He said, I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. When you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Verse 10, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. Verse 12, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I mean, Boaz is offering Ruth a, a remarkable compliment. Though she is a foreigner, Boaz says, she has de demonstrated incredible loyalty and love to her mother-in-law, and so he chooses to protect her, to provide for her, and he offers her a powerful blessing of the Lord's protection. Now, I want to remind you about two things that we learn uh, two things that we learn about in Ruth 2 that are extremely important. Two things that we learn about Boaz. And again, the first is that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech, which is Ruth's dead father-in-law. That means Boaz is in the position of being a family or kinsman redeemer. And we'll unpack that in a little bit. He could be a kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. That's the first thing you need to know. The second thing is that Boaz... In Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. A wealthy and influential man. Other translations render this a mighty man or a noble man. Do you know what Boaz actually is? A gibor hail, A man of valor. So hang on a second, hang on a second. Ruth, Ruth, a woman of valor heads to a field, any old field, to get some grain, and she just so happens to go to the field owned by a man of valor? This is what we call a meet-cute. 
Do you know what a meet cute is? That's in the romantic comedy when like they bump into each other and they spill hot chocolate on one another and that's how that's the meet cute. Right? This moment is like the beginning of a Hallmark movie. Except instead of a young woman committed to her career, finding herself trapped in her hometown because the airport's canceled and staying in an inn owned by her high school sweetheart <laughs> who doesn't love Christmas. Instead of all that, we have a woman of valor meeting a man of valor while gleaning the wheat. I mean, can you feel the love tonight or what? So the harvest comes to an end and it's time to thresh the grain. And, and, and where you go to thresh the grain in ancient Israel is called a threshing floor. It's this public building where everybody gathers their grain together and everybody, it's this whole process, but basically it's where you separate the parts of the wheat that you can't eat from the parts of the wheat that you can't. And it's kind of a party and everybody drinks a lot and we're working. I mean, this is ancient Israel, so there's no like heavy machinery, but you know, there's, you got to imagine there's like pitchforks. So you got to watch out for being poked a little bit because everybody's been drinking the end of the harvest year. Uh, hooch but um, so uh, Boaz and his people have been there threshing the wheat all day and they decide to sleep there that's what you do you'd sleep to guard your grain right and this is when Ruth takes a big risk chapter 3 verse 7 after Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits if you know what I mean he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep, and Ruth came quietly. This is chapter 3, verse 7. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my kinsman redeemer. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my kinsman redeemer. Y'all, ancient Israel, a woman just took initiative. A woman just proposed to a man in ancient Israel, okay? Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, verse 10, Boaz exclaimed. For you are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you've not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. I don't know if Boaz is calling himself a sugar daddy here or what, but... Verse 11, now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman, a woman of valor. Now this is where we need to unpack the idea of a kinsman redeemer, right? She said, spread the corner of your covering over me for you are a family redeemer. Now we began to explore the idea of a kinsman redeemer last week. So if you remember, Judah had, a man named Judah had three sons and his oldest son, uh, heir, married a woman named Tamar and heir died. And so the second son named Onan had to produce an heir, H-E-I-R, for heir, E-R, had to produce an heir for his brother. So he slept with his dead brother's wife in order to, that's kind of the beginning of the kinsman redeemer law, right? Because Tamar has no male sons. She has known to provide for her. So in that sense, he's a little bit of what's called a family redeemer. 
But as we unpack further in the book of Leviticus, there becomes this whole thing, these laws about a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is a male relative charged with helping a family member in danger. Elimelech is a male relative to Naomi and to Ruth. And so there's all of these legal stipulations that I'm not going to get into. I, I am, time out, I am skipping so much, it's ridiculous. There's a wonderful book by a scholar named Carolyn Custis James. The book is called The Gospel of Ruth. It is one of my all-time favorite books. I read half of it this week just to prepare for the sermon. I'm skipping so much. And she explains kind of all of these laws and these things, but in essence, the law made it possible for, for Boaz in marrying Ruth to kind of buy, to get back all of Elimelech's land and to provide a home for her and to do all of these things. But the core of the idea of the kinsman redeemer, the family redeemer, is that there's a male relative charged with helping a family member in danger. And so Boaz has to do some footwork in chapter four to become Ruth's kinsman redeemer, but his work pays off and he marries Ruth. And this is what we find in Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. She gave birth to a son. And the women of the town said to Naomi, Naomi, the father, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and who has been better to you than seven sons. Okay, do you want to know what the best thing that could ever happen to a woman in ancient Israel in ancient times could have been? Do you want to know the height of living? Seven sons. Seven's a number of completion. And now the women of Bethlehem just praised Naomi and said, Hey, this foreigner chick that you brought back to town, I know that we're kind of like subtly racist and we don't like immigrants here, but... Uh, she's actually pretty good. She's better than seven sons to you. This woman of valor who came wandering into Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. May he restore your youth and care for your old age. He is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. And Naomi took the baby to her breast and cuddled him and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor woman said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. And he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. And what you need to understand is like all of those feelings that you feel at the end of the Hallmark movie that were totally unsurprising but still make you feel all the flutters is exactly how the first readers of this would have felt. Because Boaz isn't just marrying her out of business. He's in love with her. She's in love with him. And then to find out that this baby that they produce is it an ancestor of David? I mean, like, people are, like, passing out in the aisles as this is being read to them. Nobody gets better than David. Listen, so, and this is why there's a different ordering to the books between the Hebrew canon and, and the Protestant and the Christian canon. In the, book, in the Hebrew canon, the book of Proverbs follows, uh, it, the book of Proverbs precedes the book of Ruth. Ruth follows Proverbs. So that as you're reading about this woman of valor, you turn into the pages of Ruth, and now you're seeing like this living, breathing woman of valor. But in the Protestant Christian arrangement of scriptures, Ruth immediately follows the book of Judges. The book of Judges is hot mess express, is what that is. 
The repeated words in the book of Judges is everyone did what is right on their own eyes. The promises that God made to his people never seem more in jeopardy than they do in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a cesspool of disbelief and disobedience. It's disgusting. It's the worst. And the reason the book of Ruth follows the book of Judges is because the book of Ruth takes place in the time of Judges and because it's as if they're saying, here's this beautiful lily of hope floating on this cesspool of garbage and despair. This lily that secures the line of David. Now, why is the book of Ruth significant to us? Why does all of this matter? To answer that question, I, I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, and to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. See, the thing that Ruth spends a lot of the book overcoming, especially that second chapter, the thing that Ruth has to spend a lot of time overcoming is that she is a foreigner. She is a non-Israelite. She really is an immigrant into the land of Israel. And because she's an immigrant, because she's a foreigner, she has no claim to the promises of God. She has no inheritance among his people. In the words of Ephesians, she is, Ruth is, without God and without hope in the world. But through the act of a kinsman redeemer, a male member of the family with responsibility to deliver and protect her, she is ushered into the promises and she becomes King David's great-grandmother. A foreigner becomes King David's great-grandmother because of a kinsman redeemer. The book of Ephesians says this in chapter 2, verse 19. Now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Do you know why Ruth is included in the line of Jesus? It's so that you and I can be included in the line of Jesus. The promises of the Old Testament are for ethnic, not geopolitical, ethnic Israel. He's their Messiah. He's their Redeemer. Except that we Gentiles have been grafted in. And by placing Ruth in the story, the storyline of Jesus, and placing Ruth in his by having Ruth providentially included in the ancestry of Jesus, it opens the door for you and I to be included too. Because we are like Ruth. We're Gentiles. We were without God and without hope in the world. Strangers and foreigners, except for the fact that Jesus a male relative to all of us has become our kinsman redeemer. Jesus, a male relative, responsible for intervening when his family are in danger, comes as a kinsman redeemer, and it is his life and his death and his resurrection that makes it so that we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but citizens with all of God's holy people members of God's family. He is a kinsman redeemer. He lays down his life. He invites us into the story, Gentiles and foreigners, all of us. And while we become members of God's family, while we are citizens of heaven, the New Testament continues to insist 
on also calling us foreigners. We are citizens and family members and simultaneously foreigners and strangers. Peter uses that language, as does the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. It says this. Excuse me, verse 13 through 16. Verse 13 through 16. All of these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on the earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. While we are citizens of heaven, while we belong to this country we can call our own, while our destin destiny is secure in our heavenly homeland, in a city that has been prepared for us, we remain in this life nomads and foreigners. We welcome the promise of what is to come at a distance. A distance that will only be closed when Christ returns to us or he brings us to himself through death. We are nomads seeking after a city that belongs to God, seeking after a land that we can call our own. And on the one hand, we belong to there, but on the other hand, we aren't there yet. And because we're not there yet, we are like Ruth. Our lives will be marked by profound difficulty. Our lives will be marked by grief and disappointment and death. And sometimes, well, we're nomads and strangers. In fact, a lot of the time, while we're nomads and strangers, doesn't it just feel like everybody else is getting this full harvest, but all I get are the edges? Everybody else gets to have the full harvest and have the party, but me, I'm just back here picking the grains up off the ground that nobody else wanted. Sometimes it feels like we won't ever get to have a full harvest, that all where our life will be spent gleaning at the edges, gleaning at the edges. But what is so striking about Ruth's story? What's so striking about Ruth's story is God's quiet, providential hand involved in all of her affairs. Nowhere in the text of Ruth does God part the skies and come down and make things happen. But somewhere in the background, God was arranging circumstances and slowly but surely bringing her home. Life is profoundly unfair and remarkably difficult. And in those moments, that pain, that confusion, that disappointment is the core reminder that we are not from here. That we are citizens of a city that we have yet to see, that we are foreigners who still live under the gentle care of God. It will not always be the edges. 
It will not always be the scraps. It will not always be the leftovers. Because one day, one day, we will come to the city. Until then, I've been thinking a lot about uh, a Bible college classmate of mine named John Guerra has a, has a song called Citizens. And he, the chorus of that song says this. I need to know there is justice, that it will roll in abundance, and that you're building a city where we arrive as immigrants and you call us citizens and you welcome us as children home. Father, we live in the tension between what is and what is not yet, what might be and what could be. And so, Lord, would you give us eyes to see the hand, uh, your hand in the background of our lives, arranging circumstances. Would you help us see that our lives are not always just gleaning at the edges, that you're preparing a harvest for us and a home. Most of all, thank you for including us in this story. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.